You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John chapter 7, verse 37. We'll begin reading there and read through the completion, at least through verse 52. Verse 53 will be subject of next week. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we approach these sacred words, we pray, O oh Father, that you be our teacher, instructor, and guide. Father, we recognize that apart from you we have no good thing, and especially teaching. We pray, Father, that you, by way of your Holy Spirit, would open our hearts and enable us to hear, to understand, and to apply uh, your word uh, to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. <laughs> Well, it hasn't been that long since we were in John's Gospel, but it has been a little while since we were in John 7, hasn't it? And if your memory is like mine, uh, it gets a little foggy after time. Uh, sometimes it doesn't even take a lot of time, and it can get foggy. Uh, some of you will know better about that than others, perhaps, and with that, I'll, I'll get onto another subject. But um, I think one of the best ways, I don't want to spend a lot of time this morning trying to uh, do a, a, a lengthy review because we really have a lot before us, and I think that as we go along, um, we can review, and I think it'll uh, it'll lift the fog from uh, John chapter seven. But let me say, let me preface uh, with a outline that I gave you a few weeks ago that I think is really really helpful, and it's a time frame. If you look at John chapter 1 through 13, John 7, I'm sorry, not chapter 1 through, John 7, 1 through 13, there you'll recall that these things, John 7, verses 1 through 13, these verses concern the beginning of the feast, if you will. Uh, really, they concern uh, a, a, some dialogue that Jesus has with his siblings before they get to the feast, and then uh, the feast begins. And if you look at verse 14, this is John 7, verse 14, there we have about the middle of the feast. That's the second time marker. So we have, the, we have some things that take place just before the feast and then at the beginning of the feast. Then we have things taking place in the middle of the feast. 
And if you look at the text we come to this morning, there we're told on the last day of the feast. The, the, the chapter can be uh, uh, outlined and divided in, in a number of different ways. That's just one uh, way that I think is really helpful. Now, if you look at verse 37, uh, here we're told the last day, there's a lot of ink spilled about which day that is, whether it's the seventh day of the feast itself or whether it is uh, the Sabbath that would follow. So in other words, uh, there's a lot of ink spilled over whether it's the seventh or the eighth day. I, I'm not going to um, get into a lot of that, not to say that it's unimportant, but it's not the most edifying thing to, to look at all those arguments and things. Um, so it's one of those two days. I, I'll give you a personal feeling on it. I think that, that I kind of lean towards the eighth day. It's the Sabbath. It's a high Sabbath because it's following the uh, uh, feast of uh, um, uh, boost, if you will. We could ask that second question. What is the, the feast that's in, in view here? If you look back to verse 2 of chapter 7, uh, you see that the feast of boost was at hand. Now, the modern reader reads that, and a lot of times, what's a feast of booth? Whereas the ancient reader, uh, the ancient Jewish reader would have known this really well. They would have, they would have experienced this. Uh, it would be almost like something like saying Palm Sunday to uh, one of us uh, who've been in the church for a while. You say Palm Sunday, oh, we get that. We under, we've, 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 we've been to Palm Sunday services many, many times. Um, and you'll recall that when we were in uh, John chapter 7, verse Two, I'd made a, some noise about the Feast of Booths. It was one of the uh, three major feasts, if you will. There were others. But one of the three major feasts that required uh, all of the Jewish males to make pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. Uh, you had Passover, you had Pentecost, and you had Feast of Booths. Now, it can be confusing because sometimes these feasts are called by other names. They're called by Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles or even Feast of Ingathering. Uh, so it can be confusing at the start. But uh, why call it the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles? Because at it, they would make these tents, if you will, out of branches and, and foliage. They would make the tents, and they would, they would live in those tents, like camp out in those tents uh, for seven days. And uh, why would they do that? Uh, it was in commemoration of the Lord's provision and protection of their fathers as they wandered around in the wilderness. After Moses delivers, uh, or God delivers uh, Israel out of Egypt through Moses, uh, they make their way out into the wilderness. And you'll recall they wandered there uh, for 40 years, and God protected them. We're told that their sandals didn't even wear out. Uh, does, anybody, does anybody have a 40-year-old pair of shoes? I've got some old ones. I just hate to throw away. They're, they're in need of some duct tape. Um, am I the only one that does that? That's when they're most comfortable, isn't it? Um, but they didn't wear out. God provided for them. And furthermore, he provided manna from heaven. And he provided water from the rock. So the, the, the Feast of Booths was multifaceted. It was also a celebration of the ingathering, a celebration of the crop, which involved rain. You know, no rain, no crop. So it was a celebration of that. And we know from uh, ancient Jewish writings, we know a little bit about how it was celebrated, at least up to about 200 years. We can go back to about 200 years before Christ's earthly ministry. And perhaps some scholars think this, this may have even went back further. 
But there was a water rite that was uh, celebrated at the Feast of Booths, which is, I think, very important understanding what Jesus is going to say to us here in verses 37 and 38. And what this water rite involved was uh, going to the pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher. They would, they would uh, draw water from the uh, waters of Siloam, if you will, and then they would make a procession, like a parade that would be led by the high priest, and they would carry this water back to the temple. And there would be priests accompanying them. The temple choir would be accompanying them. The temple choir would be singing the Hallel. Uh, those are Psalms 113 through 118. And uh, people, you'll like this, the, 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 the crowds and even some of the priests uh, would grab branches. Uh, the people would grab branches that were a collection of uh, willow and myrtle uh, branches with uh, palm leaves uh, sewn in, if you will. And in one hand, they would wave those branches, which was an expression of joy, if you will. They'd be waving these branches as an expression of joy. And in their other hand, they would have a piece of citrus fruit, which they'd wave in the other hand. And so they're waving these branches, if you will. They're waving the citrus fruit. Uh, if you will. And it's a time of great joy as they make procession into the temple area. And as the high priest comes to the altar, the altar that's in the temp temple court, he would pour uh, the water before the Lord at the base uh, of the altar. Now, what is the significance of this? What is this symbolizing? First, it's symbolizing provision. You know, with this water, there it's a, it's an expression. And, they, and my understanding is they did this every day of the feast. So this happened seven times in a row. They do this every day around the time of the morning sacrifice. They would do this, and it was it was to commemorate and memorialize in Thanksgiving for the rain that the Lord had caused to flow onto the region. Mind you, these are largely desert regions. They're they're hot. They're dusty. Um, rain is very important. Again, no rain, no crop, no crop, no harvest. But the significance, this, there's a second level of symbolism to this. And the second level of sim, uh, symbolism to this is that God's promise to pour out His Holy Spirit upon the people in the last days. Well, we might say, where's that coming from? And someone will say, well, that comes from the Old Testament prophets, doesn't it? And that's 100% correct. You don't need to turn to any of these passages. I'm just going to... I'm just going to read a few of them to you. You don't need to bother turning to all of these. You can write them down. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. We know that these verses were read at the Feast of Booths, and they read as follows. Uh, Zechariah 14, verse 16, Then everyone who survives of all of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. In other words, this is a charge for the people to keep the Feast of Booths. Verse 17, And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So there we see the idea of rain. Now, in this same chapter, in verse 8, this is Zechariah 14, verse 8, we have this prophecy. Speaking of the last times, or the Messianic age, if you will, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. 
And here's this promise of waters flowing, if you will, uh, out of Jerusalem. And we could add to that the passage that we read this morning from uh, Ezekiel. I won't read all that again, but there in that Ezekiel passage, we read of um, uh, waters flowing from under the threshold of the temple, flowing south, and these waters flowing through the Holy Land, if you will, and everything that these waters come in contact with becomes living, if you will. It is given life, if you will, everything that comes in contact uh, with these waters. And we could even add uh, our call to worship this morning, uh, taken from Isaiah uh, chapter 12, which I'll reread, uh, especially verse 3. And this was the reason for choosing this particular passage. As it makes for a great call to worship, uh, in verse 3, uh, Isaiah 12, verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah has a number of passages that speak along these lines. We could find another one in, in uh, chapter 44, uh, verse 3. I'll read verses 1, 2, and 3. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I've chosen. Listen to verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 55. Let's read one more. Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. So what are they doing at the Feast of Booths with this water rite, R-I-T-E? What are they doing? They're celebrating the provision of rain that the Lord has been pleased to shower down upon them for that particular season, you know, waving their, their palm branches, if you will, expression of joy and the citrus fruit in their hands, which is a clear expression. I mean, it's, it's fruit from the tree. And uh, with this water rite, uh, they're commemorating this provision, but they're also looking symbolically to this promise of the messianic age where the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon the people. Now, I share all this with you not to give you a lesson in ancient Jewish religion or ancient Jewish worship services. I share all this with you because it is into this context that Jesus proclaims these words in verses 37 and 38. He says, and this is one of the reasons why I'm inclined, this is just me personally, I'm inclined to think that Jesus is saying this on the eighth day because this water rite wouldn't have been done that day. And I'm, I'm thinking that he did this in the absence of that, uh, of that water rite, but we can't be sure, we just don't know. But Jesus, in the, in the context of this, stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Now, what is Jesus doing there? He's making an astonishing statement. It wasn't one that was understood, but with the light of the New Testament and the, the, and the light of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, we can, we can clearly see what Jesus is doing here as he's saying, listen, I am the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths is a celebration of provision. No water, no crop, or in other words, no rain, no crop, no crop, no harvest, no harvest, no life. So here Jesus is, the author, giver, sustainer of life, making this announcement, okay, in the midst of this celebration for provision. And here he comes to bring eternal life to all those who will put their trust in him, right? And secondly, he is the Messiah. He is the one who will return to the Father and in concert with the Father will issue and send and dispatch the Holy Spirit upon land where the Holy Spirit will be poured out on the people of God. It's an astonishing statement. And it's one that we will do well to pay uh, close attention to. I want to spend most of our time this morning on verses 37 and 38. We'll move through the rest very quickly. But let's take a look at verse 37 to start with. What does Jesus say? He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, it's often pointed out here that there are three key words. They're not hard to, they're not hard to see. Thirst, come, and drink. Three operative, three very key words uh, in this verse. What is Jesus saying? If anyone thirsts, anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let's spend a moment or two on each of these words, starting with thirst. I think it's hard for us, as I was thinking, going through this on Friday, I was thinking through this. I'm thinking, you know, we don't really know what most of us, I don't want to speak for all of us, maybe some of us do, but for the most part, we really don't know what thirst is, do we? I mean, we live in a time that really is unprecedented in terms of the history of humanity, and we don't even think anything of it. If you're thirsty, you can go into your kitchen and pull on a lever and water comes out. And it's water that, for the most part, is safe to drink. Um, running water is something that we don't... Who woke up this morning asking, or coming to the Lord, Lord, I thank you for the fact that I have indoor plumbing in my home and I have uh, running water. Um, I will tell you, there are some homes here in the county that do not have indoor plumbing. There are. Um, those folks wouldn't take that for granted. But for the most part, uh, we, we take it for granted, don't we? And as a consequence, if we're thirsty, we can get as much water as we want any time we want it. Uh, our idea of thirst maybe might be, you know, we've played basketball in the hot sun and now we're thirsty, or perhaps maybe more commonly we've done some yard work out in the hot sun and we're thirsty, but we can immediately quench that. Uh, so we don't know what thirst is like. But this metaphor is carefully chosen by the Holy Spirit to speak to people who know what thirst is about. If we lived in a desert climate prior to water companies being prevalent, sorry, Cody, you made me think of the water company, um, you know, we would probably have a better idea of what this thirst is all about. 
I don't think many of us have ever been so thirsty that our lips are parched and are, are swollen and the back of our mouths are parched. We probably don't know. But many of these people would have known that. So the idea of thirst would have spoke very, very uh, loudly to them, uh, very strongly to them. And Jesus is not appealing to the, to, to the physical here, is he? We know that. He's using a physical thing as a metaphor for a spiritual one. What is Jesus saying here? Thirst. He's talking about a particular type of thirst, a particular type of thirst that involves thirst for God. That's what the psalmist talks about in Psalm 42. You don't need to turn there, but just think. You know, some of us know we used to sing a song, as the deer pants for the water. You know, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. And it's this idea of being thirsty for God, thirsty for uh, Christ, if you will. Psalm 63 starts out the same way, doesn't it? This thirst for the Lord. And uh, we could begin to make application of this now. Uh, you know, anybody that's wanted to try to share the gospel, and, and uh, hopefully that's all of us, we're all called to do it. Uh, but anyone who's even spent 15 minutes trying to share the gospel understands one thing. Uh, the biggest obstacle that we have in sharing the gospel is there's no thirst. Is there? You know, I invited a fellow to church here just a couple days ago, and I was just teasing him, you know. You never know what will come out of these things, though, but we were talking a little bit, and I wanted to steer the direction into spiritual things, and we were talking about the church, and, and uh, I said, you know, i got a seat saved for you. We have a seat saved for you. And uh, it quickly was met with, no, 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 no. That'll be all right. Now, I love this guy. I love him. And please don't. I'm not, I'm not um, trying to take anything away from him. There was a time in my life I'd answered the same way. All I'm trying to point out is the fact that there's no thirst for God. There's a thirst, however. You know, sometimes preachers, and I've heard preachers do this on these texts, they'll make a, they'll, you know, this is so true. Um, yesterday, Tammy and I were eating in the backyard, and we're eating at a little table there on our porch, and there was our Jack Russell Terrier, and, you know, um, he's just sitting there, and you, you ever watch dogs do this? He's just sniffing. You ever watch them do that? I mean, they're content. Uh, they, they can be perfectly content to do that for hours on end, actually, just to sit and look around and, It'd be hard-pressed to find one of us to be content to sit anywhere for any length of time. We are, you know, in comparison, we are so discontented. And what is at the center of that is a thirst. We're thirsty. We're just thirsty for all the wrong stuff. We're thirsty for everything but the Lord. And it's, 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 it's not a flattering statement when we begin to parse it out and we begin to look at it and we begin to look at, look at what's really going on, there's a terrible indictment towards us all because we have a passion for all of the things that the Father has given to us, yet we have hatred for the Father. We, are, we, left to ourselves, are a people who loves the things our heavenly parent gives us. 
but we do not love our heavenly parents. Sometimes we'll see kids that are spoiled rotten acting like that, and we despise it, don't we? But when we look into the mirror of Holy Scripture, what do we see? We see that reflection upon our faces. Left to ourselves, we are thirsty. We're just not thirsty for the benevolent one who's given us all these good things in our lives. That's a terrible indictment, isn't it? It's a terrible indictment. Jesus, he says here, listen, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Now, Jesus is alluding to something that he had said in John chapter 6, which we have studied. If you look at John chapter 6 and you look at verse 37, for example, all that the Father gives to me or all the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Or if we look at verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He says it again in verses 63 and 65. And we could ask the question, how? Okay, no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And if you want to ask the question, how is it that the Father draws people to Jesus? The answer, according to Jesus in John 37, or John 7, 37, is thirst. How does the Father draw his children to Jesus Christ? Makes them thirsty. We're already thirsty for the wrong stuff. But what he begins to do is create a massive amount of discontentment in our hearts. This varies from person to person, but we become thirsty for him. Some of us who have been converted as adults will be like, mm, yeah, you know, that sounds familiar. Sounds familiar to me. I remember being drawn to reading the Bible. You know, I, 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 was, I don't know, about 30 years old, being just... I just started reading the Bible. I didn't know what was going on. I had no clue what was going on. I remember asking people, what's going on here? I didn't know what was going on. All I knew was I was reading the Bible, and I was reading it for hours on end. What was really, now I know what was going on. The Holy Spirit was creating a thirst in my heart. And we could ask ourselves a, a, a diagnostic question this morning, and, and we should. I think I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't, pause for a moment and just by way of application, ask this question. Are you thirsty for Jesus? And ask this question carefully of yourself. I'm not, just say to yourself, am I thirsty for Jesus? Or am I thirsty for the benefits that Jesus can offer? There's a big difference between the two, isn't there? Am I thirsty for Him? Am I thirsty for Christ? And we could even ask this question, to what measure am I thirsty this morning? It's a great spiritual diagnostic. Because as we get off to the left or to the right from Christ, what's the first thing that happens? Our thirst for Jesus diminishes as our thirst for things of the world increases, doesn't it? Doesn't that happen every time? But then as you, go, as you grow closer to Christ, what happens? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, and the things of this world grow strangely dim, right? It's that spiritual principle, and we can ask ourselves the question this morning, are we thirsty for Jesus? You know, the motivational speakers, they always tell their audiences, stay hungry, 
uh, here, I think, not to mimic that, but I think one good thing here would be to ask the Lord, Lord, keep us thirsty for Jesus, that we would be constantly seeking Him, constantly uh, coming to Him. And some will say of this verse, they'll say, of John 7, 37, they'll say, well, you know, this, is, this just speaks of an unbeliever who's becoming a believer. Uh, he thirsts, he comes to Jesus, and he is satisfied. And then after that, uh, the thirst is quenched. I, I don't think that's accurate. I think, it's, I think it's accurate in the respect that, yes, this thirst is created and it leads us to Jesus. And as we come to Jesus and we come to him savingly, salvation is here. But what about sanctification? What about growing in grace? And I'm just giving you a preview for what we're going to be studying in John chapter 15, where Jesus uses the word meno, the Greek word meno, which we translate abide. And he says, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. What would, what, would, what would cause us to want to abide in Jesus? Thirst. May the Lord make us so thirsty for Jesus that we would go to him and be quenched and go to him and be quenched, that we would stay there and continually drink. Now, back to John seven thirty seven. Notice the second key word here, which is come. Let him come to me. I stumbled across, and I, I am so thankful for more time to be able to read more widely, because I, I wouldn't have had this. I just would not have had this a month ago. I wouldn't have <laughs> the time to go there. But uh, Arthur Pink, some of you know the name A.W. Pink. I love to read Arthur Pink. Uh, he commented, he wrote a commentary on John's gospel, and he commented on this text, and he said something that I, I think is so profound, speaking about this idea of coming. What does it mean to come to Jesus? He says this, to come is to do with your heart and your will what you would do with your feet. If Jesus was bodily in front of you, and commanding you to come to him. Do you get that? I read that and I was like, you know, Tammy was working at home that morning and I went in and interrupted her and I said, listen to this. And then I added, that'll preach. To come to Jesus is to do with your heart and your will what you would do with your feet if Jesus was standing right before you and commanding you to come to him. Arthur Pink goes on to say that notice that Jesus calls us to come to him. He says, come to me. He says that's not, he's not commanding us to come to the Lord's table. He's not commanding us to come to the waters of baptism. He's not commanding us to come to church membership. He's not commanding us to come to a priest or come to a minister. He's commanding us to come to him. That is such an important thing. Because a lot of times, and, it's, and, and, and Arthur Pink would uh, be the first one to say the, the, the Lord's Supper is important, baptism is important, church membership is important. All of these things are important. But what he is pointing out is sometimes we can join a church and think and join the church. We've come to Jesus when joining the church means we've joined the church. Join the church doesn't necessarily mean we've come to Jesus. I mean, we would vow that we've come to Jesus, but have we come to Jesus? It's possible for people who, have, who, who are not in a state of grace to come to the Lord's table. It's possible for people who are not in a state of grace to be baptized. 
People come to ministers and priests all the time. And one of the reasons for that is because you can see the minister. You can see the priest. We can't see Jesus. And some of you will know, I will not, I will not allow you to attach yourself to me in that way. You know that. Because we have stopped. And very lovingly, I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's stop. I am not Jesus. If you follow me for about 15 minutes, I will prove that point uh, that I'm not Jesus. I will disappoint you. I will fail you. I can't save you. I can't save me. I need Jesus just like you need Jesus. Notice what's being said here. If anyone thirsts, Jesus says, don't come to Mary. Don't come to Christopher. Don't come to the waters of baptism. Don't come to the Lord's Supper. Don't come to all of these. Come to me. And with Jesus saying, come to me directly, how dare we put anything between us and him? How dare anyone else do it? In fact, the, the, the idea of pastoral ministry is to stay out of the way. I can only get in the way if I try to step between you in Jesus. He says, come to me. And thirdly, he says, drink. What is it to drink? You know, I was watching the news, and I really would love to know what's going on in the southern border. I don't believe you're going to know completely by watching news of any kind. But one thing I do know about that, and I don't want to bring politics into this, the only thing I'm calling attention for is I know because I've seen videos of a lot of the children that are coming across that border. When they're handed a bottle of water, they guzzle it down, don't they? Because these kids haven't had any water in a long time. And it's, 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 a, it's a great illustration. What does it mean to drink? Well, we can be thirsty. We can be walking through a parched land for a long time, and someone say, here's a bottle of water. And it's not going to do us any good if all we do is stare at it, is it? Ah, there's the water. Finally, I got the water. It's not going to do you any good until you turn the cap off and you drink it. So if, if I might um, use Arthur Pink's illustration, to drink is to do with our heart and will what we would do with our fingers if being thirsty in a parched land, someone offered us a bottle of water, we would, with our heart and will, turn the cap off and drink it. In other words, we appropriate it. In other words, what do we do? We take Jesus to be our own. And Jesus says as much in verse 38. He says, whoever believes in me. See, that believes in me. Now, we have been studying through John's gospel, and we've seen that whenever belief comes, Whenever we see many believed in him, it doesn't always mean that, they've, that they're believing in him savingly, does it? In fact, often it means that their faith was spurious. When they saw the signs, many believed in him. And we know that a lot of that belief was spurious. It wasn't the real thing. It wasn't the real deal. It wasn't uh, saving faith, if you will. Here, saving faith is in view. Whoever believes in me, whoever has drank, Whoever out of thirst given to him by the Holy Spirit has come to me and has drank. In other words, whoever has repented of their sins, put their faith and trust in me, trusted in me savingly, resting in me, whoever believes in me this way, look at the rest of the verse. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's an extraordinary statement. 
And we know from verse 39 that what's being spoken of is the Holy Spirit. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, what's extraordinary about that is a lot of times we think about the Spirit. We think about the Spirit flowing from the Father and the Son being flown down upon the church, right? But here, the Spirit is flowing out from the heart of the believer, literally from the belly. If anyone has a King James open, it's the belly flowing forth from his belly. Now, what in the world is going on there? What Jesus is saying is that this issue of the Holy Spirit that's being promised by the prophets will be fulfilled in me, and those who believe in me and those who abide in me will receive such a measure of this Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, such a measure of him and his presence that it will outflow from his life in all directions, everywhere he or she goes. Now, that's, that's great news for those who want to make a difference. You're in Christ Jesus, and you're sitting here, and Monday morning you want to make a difference. How do we make a difference? We abide. How do we make a difference? We come to Jesus and we drink. And out of that flow, out of that flow in ways that we're, most of which we're not going to be aware, because God keeps much of this secret. He wants to always remind us that he's the one doing the work, not us. But as you scatter from here and go into your representative places, you're going to change things. When a believer who's abiding in Jesus goes into the office, changes take place in the office. When a believer who's abiding in Christ Jesus goes to the garage, changes take place in the garage or the water department or wherever it is to the dentist's office. Isn't that a tremendous statement? Let me read the whole thing to you again. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. <laughs> With a statement like that, how do you suppose people are going to respond? You think they're all falling down? Give us this living water? You know, it's the same thing Jesus said at the woman in the well, by the way, right? In John chapter 4. She said, give me this water. She didn't understand what she was saying. But she was on, the, she was, she was on her way, wasn't she? You would think with a statement like this, here is Jesus. Here is the Messiah. They've been, they've been grabbing this golden bucket. They've been going out to the, uh, the river of Siloam, and they're dumping all this water on the altar. And right in their midst is Christ Jesus, the Messiah. And there he, in the midst of all this, is saying, listen, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And out of your belly will flow this water the Holy Spirit, who is symbolized by that golden pitcher you're carrying around. You would think with a statement like that, they'd be falling down, crying out, give us this water. How do they respond? Look at verse 50, or 40, I'm sorry. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet, verse 41. Others said, this is the Christ. In the early uh, first century, there were people that believed the prophet promised by Moses was a different individual than the Messiah. There was, there was a belief like that. We, we understand the prophet and the Messiah are the same. But notice that there's confusion. They, they, 
some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? You see, uh, the modern commentaries call this uh, uh, Johannine irony. They call it irony, uh, John's irony. It's, it, they don't understand Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He is the son of David. They see him as this kid from Nazareth. So they're all confused. There's a division, verse 43 some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And if you look back to verse 32, you'll see the Pharisees had sent officers to arrest him. And they're saying, why didn't you, why didn't you arrest him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Why didn't they arrest him? It wouldn't have been possible to arrest him. You think they were going to arrest Jesus? That won't happen for six more months in the spring, the final Passover, of which John covers. That will happen because Jesus will allow them to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. We looked at that last week, didn't we? But no, no one's arresting him today. And the Pharisees answered to the officers. They said in verse 47, have, have you also been deceived? And notice the, the elitism here. This really is not pretty. Verse 48, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Look at the elitism there. Elitism is always around, and it's just as ugly in the first century as it is today. It's around today. The elites think that they have all of the knowledge, and they can tell us how we should live, and that we're too ignorant to be able to figure it out ourselves. Notice how they speak about the crowds. This crowd that does not know the law is a curse. They're supposed to be teaching the crowd, not cursing them. Be kind of like a pastor cursing his congregation instead of instructing them. Oh, look at this crowd. I mean, it's so, it's, 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 it's almost, I mean, if we can take the elitism and the arrogance and we can put it in a bag and double bag it and seal it and put it over there so we can't smell it no more, then this actually is funny. It's actually funny because notice what they say. The Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? In other words, has anybody real ever believed in him? Not you stooges. But then, verse 50, Nicodemus speaks up. Isn't that funny? They say, has any of the, has any of the authorities or Pharisees ever believed him? And Nicodemus, who is one of the Pharisees, <laughs> he speaks up. Now, is he a true believer at this point? Probably not, but he's well on his way. And he says in verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Rout row. There is one. There is one. Verse 52, look how they reply. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. I'm not sure what they mean by that. I don't think we can know completely. Because I just don't think we can know completely what is meant. Do they mean that the prophet with a capital P promised by Moses doesn't come from Galilee? Or do they mean that there are no prophets who come from Galilee? If they mean there are no prophets that come from Galilee, then they're wrong. Jonah comes from Galilee. I think Nahum comes from Galilee. And undoubtedly, there were many others that come from Galilee. So um, how are they responding? They're responding with confusion. They're responding with um, enmity and hostility. 
Um, some of them are bewildered. I think that might be the position of these officers. They're just bewildered by what they've heard. But let's close with what Jesus has said. If anyone thirsts, see, the only one who's going to get it is the one who's thirsty. Let him come to me and drink. Can we ask ourselves in closing, are we thirsting this morning? Are we thirsty? If we're not thirsting, someone say, well, what if I'm not thirsting? You know, I, I don't have any thirst. I mean, I, don't, I look in my heart, I don't have anything. What do we do? We ask the Lord for thirst. Strange as it would sound, Lord, make me thirsty. Say, Lord, I, you know, I confess that I've, I've, I've loved all the things you've given me more than I've loved you. Now I want you to make me thirsty. I've loved my children more than you. I've loved my house more than you. I've loved my car more Whatever it might be. Lord, I confess this. I've done this. I'm guilty. I'll make me thirst for you. And a prayer like that actually is evidence that you're already beginning to thirst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this text. And it's a tremendous text. And Father, we try, we try really hard to preach a text like this, but it's so glorious. Well, Father, if the Lord Jesus could preach this before us. But, oh, Father, such is your means, Father. You, you've, um, you've called us to teach. You've called us to preach. Well, Father, we pray that you would apply this to our lives. Create and well within Tri-State Community Church and everyone who is sitting here this morning a thirst for you. And we wouldn't think, we wouldn't chase after the things that you give us if we're honest, we spend so much time tending to the things you've given us and so little time just sitting at your feet. What does that say? What does that show? Oh, Father, please, we pray, create a thirst in us for you, that you would be the pearl of great price. You would be our most treasured possession, that we may come to you and drink afresh this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.